In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today again, as we should always help us to open our minds and our hearts to what we are going to be talking about here, one of the most important events in the history of, of the church. So we ask your blessing on us and help us to open our minds and our hearts to really understand and take it to heart. So many people, unfortunately, skim the surface and don't really look deeply into what is meant. So we ask your blessing on us, and we just give you praise and thanksgiving on all things in Jesus' name. Today we want to talk about, as I mentioned last week, uh, the Council of Trent. This is often referred to as the Counter-Reformation. And it was called not only to put down the erroneous teachings uh, that came out of Martin Luther and some of his followers, but to correct a lot of the looseness or the misunderstandings or the misinterpretations of a lot of the teachings of the church. As I've said before, the people involved in the Council of Trent knew long before the Martin Luther incident in 1517 and the 95 Theses that there was a need for change in the church. Not so much change from one thing to another, but the tightening up of many things that probably couldn't have been done before the invention of the printing press. With that, so many things that had to be handwritten and recopied by hand in order to disseminate the information all over <clears throat> was now made much easier. And it was really the mechanism by which the church decided to uh, combat the erroneous teachings that came out of the Reformation. <clears throat> it was something that was needed uh, and recognized, I think, by most of the people. And this was really Martin Luther's idea that the church needed to make changes because the, and of course his primary gripe, is, if you've read the 95 Thesis over this past week, uh, was about the misuse of indulgences. I happen to have an example of that. It's one of the little wipes that you get, you know, but it says here, <clears throat> wash away your sins, toilet. <laughs> Now, this is the kind of thing that Martin Luther was trying to put down. Of course, this was this is a modern day thing, and you know, obviously, it was done as a joke. But at his time, particularly in Germany, it got to be uh, totally out of 
reason, totally out of what was intended. And the original intent was to get the people to contribute to the building of all of these fancy churches and a lot of things that probably weren't necessary, but it was part of the Renaissance period. But as time went on, uh, the enterprising people, or some of the enterprising people within the church, took advantage of it for personal uses, and it just really got out of hand. The whole idea of buying and selling of indulgences for the pur purpose of getting out of uh, purgatory early or getting to heaven by, by assured, you know, a $10,000 donation or something of that kind was an exaggeration and way beyond what was intended. So the Council of Trent really was not only needed, but it was at the, the appropriate time. So you have to kind of think that these two movements overlap each other. The Council of Trent overlapped the counter or, or the Protestant Reformation. And you might say that, as I mentioned, I think, in the first or, or second <clears throat> meeting, uh, that the whole idea of this battle between good and evil, between God and the devil, takes place through movements of large groups of people. You know, the devil is not going to attack one individual for a given purpose. That has happened, but it is a very rare, rare thing. The devil is really working against Christ through large movements, and he uses people uh, for this purpose. And so if you kind of think about it, the, counter, the, the Reformation in itself was something that was really needed to begin with. And Martin Luther really had good intentions when he started out. Unfortunately, he got sucked into the movement and got, it, it went way out of hand. Um, and you can see that as kind of the, the devil working against Christ, the church. Now, the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, or the Council of Trent, was the other side of it. The Holy Spirit working with the church to counterbalance the evil of the Reformation. And a number of things were brought together. And I'd like to go through these items uh, one by one. I hope that you've read your handout here, at least the, the part of it. I'm not going to reread this because I think. Uh, yes, Mike? Who exactly was the Council of Trent? Was it the Pope, the bishops? Who, who exactly was in this group? Well, I think you've got a good point. Mike asks so who was in the group. All right, let me explain a little bit about what a council is an ecumenical council is. There are different levels of councils, but an ecumenical council is the top level of meeting of all of the highest dignitaries of the church. Okay. 
in this particular council, Trent, there were 250 some odd uh, bishops and cardinals. Remember, a cardinal is a bishop without any other different powers, except he's got more responsibilities and it is more of a honorary title. Like you can't do anything, you can't work miracles or anything any different than anyone else. But it is the bishops of the church that are brought together and called by the Pope only. The Pope is the only one that can call an ecumenical council. And it is made up of all of the active bishops and cardinals. There are also a number of other people that are invited so that it is not a secret thing by any means. There are a number of Protestant uh, or non-Catholics, I really should say, who are invited. There are a number of priests that are invited, but they do, do not have voting power. It is only the bishops and the cardinals that have voting power. So a council may be called. Uh, let me give you a little more modern example. The Vatican II Council, the very last of the 21 councils, Vatican II was called by Pope John XXIII, who only reigned for a very short time. But he saw the need for change. And one of his famous lines is, he opened the windows of the Vatican to let a breath of fresh air in, meaning the Holy Spirit. He called this council in 1959, but it didn't get started until 1962, and that is because he had to develop um, sort of a structure of items that were going to be covered, and then people had all of these for the, for the uh, Vatican II Council, there were 2,500, 2,500 bishops and cardinals involved. And because of uh, travel arrangements and preparations, because they knew they were going to be uh, in Rome for uh, uh, quite a while. And it is not that they're in session every day for three years or whatever it was. In this case, in Trent, it was 18 years. It is because once they get there, there are several sessions and a number of things are decided and parceled out to various people uh, in, in Trent and in Vatican II. Uh, the number of bishops are then divided into very small groups, and each of them explore uh, one or two or three given uh, items of interest that are to be changed or looked at for possible change. And that is why it takes so long for any of these councils to get through all of the intended items to be uh, researched, examined, and possibly changed. As I said, it took Trent 18 years 
to go through all of the changes. And I think when we get into some of these, you'll see why. In Vatican II, it took three years, from 1962 to 1965. Um, that's only two years. It seems to no, that's three years. Yeah, it, three years. Uh, and that is because they're not in session all the time. They're given work to do, and then they come home and spend time in research and discussion only on the subjects that they have been assigned. And then as they come back together, those subjects are then uh, discussed among all of the members. So there's a great deal of, of research, prayer, inspiration, thoughts, etc., etc. So it's not something that the Pope writes out all by himself and then says, this is it, kids, right? take it or leave it. It is a very widely <clears throat> uh, researched, explained, thought about, prayed over, prayed over uh, before it is put into any document document form. So, does that kind of answer your question? Uh, yes. Does the Pope have any veto power? Yes, the Pope does have veto power, and so do a few others. Um, one of the things that took Trent so long is that at that particular time, a number of the nobility, the ruling nobility of the Holy Roman Empire also had veto power. That has been eliminated since. Okay, no outside individuals, only uh, church members uh, and the bishops only. Bishops and, of course, including cardinals. Uh, so, you've got the picture now, I hope. Okay. So let's go through some of these. And this looks like a kind of a jumbled up uh, order. These are not in the order of the importance. These are in the order in which they were taken into consideration uh, in this council over a period of 18 years, and there were 25 sessions. In the 18 years, there were 25 sessions. Many of them uh, accomplished a lot of things. A few of them didn't accomplish anything, and a few of them also set back uh, many subjects. <clears throat> but I want to get through these and not go deal so much with the um, the problems that were involved. <clears throat> the council's main objective, at least in the beginning, was to condemn the erroneous claims of Martin Luther and his followers. Remember, the incident that started all of this was the 95 Theses, uh, and that was uh, in... 1517. So between 1517 and 1545, the Protestant Reformation exploded all over uh, Europe and took heart. It got way out of hand, way beyond what Martin Luther had intended or even wanted. Uh, but he got caught up and went along with 
uh, a lot of the erroneous things that were claimed. Uh, some of them were minor, but some of them were also very uh, important. And I'll read uh, something out of the book here on the Reformation when we get to that particular subject. So the condemnation of uh, his teachings in general, and not only his teachings, but those that came from Swigley and Calvin and a number of others. Right? One of the uh, first items that was tackled was the idea of original sin. Martin Luther put that down because he felt uh, that uh, we as individuals in modern days, and of course his time, uh, had nothing to do with uh, Adam and Eve and their, their sinning and so forth and so on. Well, you've got to remember that the whole idea of the Adam and Eve story is an allegory. It is not history. There were not two individuals, a man and a woman, called Adam and Eve. All right? This is a story to indicate how sin got into the world in the first place. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it would have been, you know, Joe and Mary or Pete and Sally or someone else. Um, but we are all involved in the effect of Adam and Eve or our original parents' sin. The whole idea is God made mankind perfect, but through the power of goodwill, mankind sinned. That is the basis for it. Let me give you sort of a modern-day uh, analogy story. <clears throat> Have any of you ever read the book uh, My Life by Margaret Martha, no, Catherine Graham, the owner or the former owner of the uh, Washington Post? Very interesting uh, biography. I love biographies. Okay. Very interesting biography. She was born into an extremely, extremely wealthy family. She uh, and her brother and sister each had their own personal servant who dealt just with them, took care of them personally. They had every possible thing uh, that they could have, you know, and so forth and so on. Now, supposing, supposing her parents did, or, you know, mother and father did something that was really stupid, and they lost everything and had to start all over. Could you imagine the effect on Catherine Graham and her brother and sister? They had to wash their own clothes. Huh? They had, you know, to buy their own food. They had to cook things on their own. Well, they never did this before, so how would they know? That, in a way, is what we today are saddled with. God made mankind perfect to begin with, gave him everything necessary to sustain him in life. But mankind sinned 
And so God had to take him out of paradise and put him in outside the, the gates, you might say, uh, to fend for himself. God really was with him and took care of him up to a point. But he was on his own and had to kind of start all over. Does that give you some idea of what original sin is? We are experiencing some of the effect of the sins of our first parents. All right. We have to do a lot of things on our own. We still have free will to choose. And we'll get into some of the problems of free will that we have talked about in the past, but come into play here. Martin Luther's um, idea of the Bible was all that was really needed to inform mankind what God wanted of him. Okay. That is called the whole concept of sola scriptura. All right. Scripture alone. And what, of course, is wrong with that is that there is more than what is necessary. We have to take the Bible and interpret it for each various generations because the interpretation can change a little bit uh, depending on many other uh, situations. The church condemned the whole idea of sola scriptura because it felt that there were other things that were necessary to give us the total of revelation. Um, the whole idea of what God wanted of mankind. And that comes from what we call the three pillars of the church. Scripture, yes, very necessary. But also tradition and the, the teachings of the church, uh, which collectively is called the magisterium. Now, don't confuse that with hierarchy. The magisterium is not people, obviously. It has to be formed and, and manned by people. But the word magisterium is referring to the, the right, the duty, the responsibility of the church to interpret scripture and then teach it. <clears throat> Any problem with that? Do you understand what I'm hopefully saying, Mike? Yeah, scripture and scripture and tradition absolutely have to be there before the magisterium. That's true. What came before the written word? No, the 
you remember, as I said before, Scripture, particularly of the Old Testament, was not written as Scripture. It was written originally as histories. How various people remembered the histories of their parents and grandparents, etc. And it was not written down until around the 10th century BC. But it was written as history. It wasn't until around the 5th or 6th century BC when those histories, and there was kind of four different groups of histories, were pulled together and put into the form of the Bible that we have today, the Old Testament. Obviously, the New Testament was not written either as scripture. It was written as instruction. This is says so right in the first letter of Peter, that all of that which was written before was written for our instruction. Okay. But as time went on, the Old Testament's histories were then accepted as sacred directions and teachings and instruction. And so they became what is now called sacred scripture. Uh, so I don't want to belabor it too much because we've got a lot to cover today. Okay. <clears throat> Sola Scriptura then is no longer accepted, or was never really accepted uh, by the church, but it is still the center belief of many Protestant faiths. The Vulgate which is the official Bible of the church, both Old Testament and New Testament, was put down by Martin Luther and his followers. Remember, as I said before, the Vulgate was uh, dismissed, you might say, not put down because they couldn't put it down, but it was sort of dismissed uh, in favor of the uh, King James Version of the Bible. Uh, and the church said no, because the King James Bible uh, left out a number of the books that were written in Greek and not accepted by the Palestinian Jews of the earlier time period. And so that was a, a major change right there. The church then in the Council of Trent went into extremes, I think, a little bit, and they were finally corrected later, uh, about anyone that read anything else other than the Vulgate was going to be condemned. Well, that didn't go over very well. And, and I can understand. Um, but part of it was to keep people under, to understand and think that there was something greater than just the uh, Bible using the Jewish version of the Old Testament. 
The next item may appear to be kind of minor in, in our eyes today, but was very important at this particular time and very much needed. The establishment of seminaries that were controlled by Rome and the magisterium, controlled by the ideas and teachings that came out of, of the church, because what was happening at Martin Luther's time was that many of the priests were not well educated, and certainly not educated along the lines of uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, many people discovered, or yeah, many people discovered and became, uh, that's the pearly music from heaven. <laughs> Many people felt that becoming a priest was uh, really an occupation that had a lot of privileges and advantages. So they would go jump into the priesthood to take uh, part uh, of these advantages. And uh, they were not interested really in being uh, a true shepherd of their flock. And so part of the teachings of the Council of Trent was that there had to be uh, seminaries established in each of the dioceses, and the dioceses at that time were far, far greater than they are today, covered much more territory because there were fewer people. Uh, uh, but the what was taught in those seminaries had to be controlled by Rome so that everybody was getting the same message. The next one is, is very important, and how many of you really understand the whole concept of justification? I don't see a lot of hands. In fact, I don't see any of them. If you read Paul's letters, particularly Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. In fact, the uh, epistle this morning in this morning's Mass of Ephesians is very, very important. And it talks about God's plan of salvation, but you'd have to read sort of... See, I love that pearly music. I <laughs> The whole idea of justification is, remember, um, I, I drew a line here on the board, and I'm going to use this. I'm sorry that not everybody can see it as well. Uh, I'm going to erase some of those things that are up there now. Just happen to have my towels with me here. Remember, I drew this line before, and if you know, it's slightly slanted. That's on purpose. We are born here, all right, at ground zero. 
Justification is this road to heaven. Okay? Or, on the other side, do you know where? And it is up to us to remain on this positive side. All right? Positive, negative. But a lot of people have chosen to go in this direction, not realizing that there is no place else to go, but unfortunately to hell. Justification is putting us on this particular road in beliefs as well as in action. <clears throat> The whole idea of being justified, which is a word we don't really hear very often in Catholic uh, terms, but nevertheless is very important. It is not the same as sanctified. Sanctified is when we get up into this area. It can be before we die, but in most cases, it is after we die by the side trip of purgatory. I don't want to get into that because it comes up in a few minutes. All right. But does this help you understand what justification is? Yes. Keeping us on the right road from here to here. Once we get up into here, we can be sanctified, but very few people are this side of death. But at the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was a very big uh, void here of understanding, and there was a great deal of dissension uh, on this. In fact, there was even wars over this. We cannot be sanctified without justification. That's right. It is sort of an entree into sanctification. That's right. But justification was and still is a very important element within our belief. The sacraments. The sacraments were taken virtually apart in the Protestant Reformation. And only two of them remained sort of intact. Baptism and baptism today. If you were baptized in any official Protestant faith, you do not need to be rebaptized if you come into the Catholic Church. How many of you actually knew that or understood that? Yeah. So, baptism is very important, but when I say officially, it has to be by water and the blessing using the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit idea or concept, all right, and for the purpose of joining the church. Yes? Is it any Christian, or is it just Protestant? Any Christian official, any, any recognized, you know, yeah. any recognized church. Yeah. You can't have just, you know, 
Mary Smith out there who's Christian and doing it on her own. Any large recognized Christian church. Yes. Yes. Well, that accepts, uh, you know, the Mormon church, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, and a few others. Right. Okay. No. All right. Uh, Mel, uh, if you've been baptized, well, could you consider yourself been saved? No. That's only a beginning. Uh, you're, you're, when you're baptized, yes, you're put on this rope yes. to justification because yes. all of your sins have been forgiven. But that doesn't mean you've been saved. Did the, did the beginning of the journey. It's the beginning of the journey, that's right. So many people feel that, you know, on, on January 25th, 1995, I was saved. And then from there on, I couldn't do any wrong. Well, uh-uh. No way. No way. And yet, unfortunately, many Protestant churches still teach that. They feel that God has, or Jesus Christ really has paid for all of our sins so that once we are justified uh, and saved, according to their mind, uh, they don't have to do anything or worry about that. And they're saved. Uh-uh. The Catholic Church <coughs> does not accept that theory. Yeah, I'm not a very good person. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't overdo it. We're uh, <laughs> always struggling. <laughs> yes, we're all struggling. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, sir. What about my mother who baptizes her grandchildren that were uh, uh, never baptized? <laughs> <laughs> you have to leave that one up to God. <laughs> all right? Because in most cases, the church would say that that is not official, that is not accepted. All right? Um, I understand, you know, your mother's intentions and all of that. Uh, now, the church does say that should a child be born and, you know, the parents or the doctors or nurses know that that child's not going to live beyond today, yes, if you then bless it with the intention of it being a Christian, and you baptize it with water using the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is acceptable. Um, and even in the case of adults, for example, two men on a battlefield, and one is, is mortally wounded, knowing he's going to die. If he asks, you know, a priest or even a, another Christian, to baptize him. That is acceptable. But those are very rare cases. All right. So you can't say across the board that, uh, you know, Grandma Moses baptized me and therefore I'm saved. Yes. I'm sorry? And then you tell the parents to go 
and then they can still have a baptism in the church, and they would do everything except the water. But yeah. They would move the North Street because they couldn't do it. Yes, yes, and that, that is true, as I said before. If a child is baptized because of the understanding that death was imminent uh, and then does survive, he or she has to be uh, baptized in the formal way uh, conditionally all right? and with the understanding that the baptism has already taken place beforehand. Yeah. And Residence and behavior of bishops and all other clergy. Well, as we know in reading anything about the Protestant Reformation, there were a number of clergy that had families. Uh, there was even a few popes that had families. Um, the whole understanding was not really clarified, uh, and the whole understanding of celibacy, I should say, was not ever clarified, although the word celibacy uh, or celibate uh, has its own understanding, and uh, but people took things into their own hand and stretched a lot of things wrongly. Celibacy then became official in the Roman church that no priest could be married before or afterward. And even deacons whose wife, whose present wife dies, that deacon cannot remarry. And that is still the case. We have a deacon in our parish, or a retired deacon in our parish right now, who is married twice. The first wife died, he remarried. The second wife died, he cannot remarry. Okay. When he remarried, he was not a deacon at that time. Okay. It is possible for a deacon to get a dispensation after I don't think so. All right. Okay. Well, I'll leave it up to that. The next one is probably the most uh, important of all. The dogma of the Eucharist with the idea of the presence of Christ and the main idea of transubstantiation and the participation in both the bread and the wine. I want to go back and read a little bit from this book here, how the people in the Reformation took apart the whole idea of the Mass and virtually destroyed it. And that's why you don't have many or most of the Protestant uh, Christian groups celebrating what they would call the Mass. It says here, <clears throat> the early evangelicals, now we're talking about Protestants now, or those who left the church and embraced Protestantism, embraced Luther's condemnation of the traditional Latin mass, which has been the center of Christian worship for centuries, ever since Christ, really. 
in their view, the Mass is not a sacrifice celebrated by the clergy that ritually reenacts Christ's passion and crucifixion. Everywhere the Reformation is established, the Mass is or was abolished. Scripture clearly attests that Christ ate a final meal with his disciples just before his death and told them to, and I'm quoting, do this in remembrance of me, reference to Luke 22. The gospel recounts the story, take, eat, this is my body. And he said, after he blessed and broke the bread with them. Then he did likewise with a cup of wine, which is why Protestants insist that the laity also, uh, the lady should receive the wine. Remember back from centuries, uh, only the priests received the wine up until Vatican II, for that matter. Uh, that was the case. Only the priests received the wine because they felt uh, other humanity wasn't worthy of it. But he did likewise with a cup of wine, which is why Protestants insist that the laity uh, should also receive the wine as well as bread uh, at communion. But then they, in one case, they, they put down communion and practically do away with it. Now, on the other hand, they're saying that if they're going to have it, they have, have the priest and all the people should have both bread and wine. You know, it's inconsistent. But what did his words and actions mean? Uh, what are the, the 16th century Christians doing? And what is God doing when they follow Christ's commandment um, to eat in remembrance of me? What, what he's saying here is that on one hand, the Protestants are saying by scripture only, sola scriptura, you can have all that is necessary uh, for belief and to be justified. On the other hand, they're saying, well, we don't need the bread and wine because the Mass is not uh, an official act anyways. So they're condemning something that is in Scripture. And that's the point that is being made here. They're condemning something that is definitely in Scripture. Christ said, this is my body and this is my blood. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life in you, meaning spiritual life. On the other hand, they're saying, well, we don't need all of that. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. They're condemning some of their own beliefs by saying all we need is what it says in Scripture, and then they take Scripture apart and say, well, we don't need this and we don't need that, and so forth and so on. The other thing that, uh, well, we'll get into this a little, a little later here. <laughs> the Sacrament of Reconciliation, or as we used to say, penance. Um, and the secrecy of the confessional. Very, very important. But the Protestants put that down saying that we didn't need to go to a priest. 
uh, we could just go uh, and pray and ask God's forgiveness. Well, yeah, you could do that, but how do you know that God is, you know, he's not going to say, well, Johnny, I forgive you. That assurance is not going to be there. Besides that, the church has always pointed to Christ whenever he would heal somebody, he would refer them to go to the priest for acknowledgement of the healing, which was part of Jewish culture. That was part of their rules and regulations, and Christ honored that by recommending, or not only recommending, uh, but telling the people that they had to do the same when either when he healed them. So uh, that was something that was really a problem and still is. I don't know of any other uh, religious or, or Christian denomination outside of the Anglicans. The Anglicans uh, are some of the Episcopalians, but most of them not of the Episcopalians here in the United States, but the Anglicans, some of them still go to confession to their priest. All right. Yes, yes. Uh, that was taken up as a very important thing because the whole idea of what if the priest is, is put under extreme pressure, remember the Spanish Inquisitions and all of that, if the priest was put under pressure to repeat uh, or tell what a given person confessed. Um, and so the seal of, con of secrecy or the seal of the confession was instituted here at Trent. At Trent. Yeah. And uh, it is still holding true today. The priest cannot, under any circumstances, even by his own bishop, to repeat what somebody confessed. Yes, ma'am. What's that? Yes, yes, definitely, yes. And also to Vatican II, there were a number of Jews, a number of people from uh, the Greek Orthodox uh, Church was also uh, invited. Where is Trent? It's in the northern part of, it, northern, north central part of Italy, very close to the German border. Is it still uh, in existence? Oh yeah, I've been there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful church there. So it's part of Germany? No, it's part of Italy. Italy. Yeah. Yeah. And that is why it was held in Trent rather than in Rome or some other place, because as I said here, uh, it was a big bone of contention. You'd be surprised how the uh, civil authorities rulers of all kinds and all levels uh, tried to muscle in and control the church. And to some degree, that's still going on. Throughout history, 
the church and the nobility of various countries uh, jockeyed for top dog position. And for a while it was one, and then for a while it was the other, and it kept going back and forth. Um, this book right here it goes into quite a bit of detail on that very subject. Uh, but uh, that's almost 600 pages long. <clears throat> okay. Any other questions right now? Yes? No, I don't think so. No. Yes, it, it is very close. It's right, yeah, it's very close, yeah. Yeah, because the last time I was in Europe, we made sort of a side stop, even though it didn't include Italy, but we made a very side stop because Trent was very close. And, you know, as I said here, there was a, a bone of contention as to whether where it should be, in Germany or in Italy. Well, this is a fairly good compromise. <clears throat> The 25th in the last session covered, and it was also one of the longest, covered a number of smaller uh, issues, uh, or at least lesser important issues as far as the church was concerned. Okay. <laughs> Saints, relics, and statues. You've probably heard of the word iconoclast or iconoclasm. You've read about it. Do you know what it really means? It is referring to the destruction of stained glass windows, paintings, statuary, relics, anything of that kind. And this was a big bone of contention by some of the Protestant Reformation people. They felt that Catholics were adoring statues and going back to uh, the whole idea of, of uh, idols, idol worship. And so they wanted to do away with all of that stuff. And the church never really indicated that it was worshiping idols, what it was trying to say was that the use of statuary and relics and was to remind us of the saints that worked hard to get to heaven. They were uh, model, role models. Um, they were inspirations and so forth. And that to worship them was wrong but to honor them was a good thing. And so the church has always fostered art, including statues, paintings, etc. Um, but this was a, a major uh, problem for most of the uh, Reformation people. And today, most Protestant churches are really devoid of any statues, uh, very few of them has, had stained glass. Of course, that's for economic reasons in modern churches, but in the old ones. Uh, last 
November, I was in the uh, National Cathedral in Washington, a magnificent building, uh, very, very large, <clears throat> but gray. It's made out of uh, granite, primarily. Uh, beautiful uh, architecture, but cold, because it has very little coloring in it. It is uh, extremely well-designed and well-built, etc., but it's cold. It has no statues. Uh, it does have a crucifix minus the image. Um, you know, its place in history is fine. I have no problem with it. Now, conversely, a few days later, I went to the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, the Catholic uh, Cathedral on the grounds of Catholic uh, University. Entirely different. It is not granted. It is a different... Uh, forgot the name of the, the stone that is used. It is also a magnificent building. Uh, it has 100 chapels in it. Some are no bigger than a closet. Uh, some are pretty good size. Uh, they all honor some part of Christianity or some person within there. Uh, <clears throat> it is a magnificent church. Is that in Washington, D.C.? Yes, it's also in Washington. They're not very far apart. Um, what a difference. The National Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, magnificent church. If you have an opportunity to be in Washington, don't. Purgatory. Oh, there's another item here that the, uh, the Reformation people really put down. The whole idea of purgatory goes back to the idea that God and mankind sinful mankind cannot live together in on earth or in heaven. That basic concept is the basic rule or origin of Mary being the immaculate conception. God had to have a perfect woman pure and undefiled in any way to carry the Son of God, God himself, for nine months as a mother would, as any mother would, all right? Purgatory is where people who have died on this side of the center, all right? but have not made satisfaction for venial sins or non-mortal sin. They have to spend some time purging themselves of the effect of those sins. And that purging is where we get the word purgatory from. It's a simple thing. The point here that I do this little detour, you might say, 
assures the individual going to purgatory that he eventually will get to heaven after some period of time. I had a friend die just the other day. He spent the last two or three days in, some, in, in a sort of a comatose state, non-responsive. It is my personal, again, my personal feeling is that is when people go through purgatory. I had another dear friend pass away who remained in that state for four days. It is that period that I think purgatory actually happens because the person isn't totally dead but is at death's doorstep. And I think that makes a lot of sense to me as to when it should be. Now, we don't know for sure, but I feel that that is when purgatory actually happens. And of course, this is something between God and the individual. So, two or three days in that state of being non-responsive can be as much as you know, years in the eyes of God if, if that's what he wants. So, the whole idea of monks and nuns had to be kind of straightened out, you might say, because there were different concepts by those people who established the various monasteries. And this wasn't to um, change the direction in which the monasteries were headed, because most of them <clears throat> at this time were the origins of our school system, and the convents were the origins of our hospitals and orphanages. It was to direct most of the the structure, uh, the reporting mechanism, the beliefs, and what they did each day. The one thing that they kind of wanted to tone down was some of the uh, extreme punishment that many of the monks would inflict upon themselves, uh, almost to the point of killing themselves uh, because they felt that the more they uh, whipped themselves, which was very common in those days, or the more they bled, <clears throat> the better and the quicker they were going to get to heaven. Well, they felt that that was uh, extremes that was both unnecessary and certainly God not intending. So the monks and the uh, convents were sort of, well, not exactly regulated, but uh, a lot of the extremes were eliminated. Now we get to indulgences. Did I hear recently that there are no more cloister convents? No. Uh, what they're trying to do is to have... <clears throat> 
the question that Dick just asked is, are there any more cloistered convents or those, and monasteries as well? Uh, no, they are still cloistered. What they're trying to do is get them to redirect their purpose. And what are they trying to do and how do they subsist? Because many of them, uh, you know, were making products that are no longer in demand and cannot subsist on those products. For example, the Trappist Monastery up at Vina, which is just north of Chico here in California, uh, was established as an offshoot from the one in, uh, in Kentucky. Um, they subsisted for years on growing wheat, which they would then sell uh, to various uh, flour millers. And that now has run its course, so they have recently changed and are now growing grape or wine grapes, which they then make into wine themselves. And it has been very productive, but for a long time, uh, the, the monks there were practically starving themselves to death because they couldn't make any money on the wheat. Right. But no, but they are still cloistered. And there are cloistered nuns as well. But most of the nuns today, um, especially, well, my sister is a nun and has been. She just celebrated her 65th uh, anniversary as a nun. Oh, by the way, I don't want to um, forget that we have a couple here today who are celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary today. So, stand Congratulations. I got a question about that. You said you said heaven is not a place. You said it's a, it's a state of being. Yes. Can you expound this one? Can you? Heaven is not a place like um, Roseville. <laughs> Close, but not, you know, no, no. Heaven is not a physical place. It is state of being. We are in the presence of God. God is a spirit. God does not need, you know, some place to sit or stand on. Yes. So we are in the presence of God when we are in heaven. What that is, nobody's come back to tell us. So we don't know exactly what heaven is. <clears throat> but just a minute. Uh, as I, I think I've said here or somewhere, um, life without any problems is heaven in itself. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, ma'am. No, it, it, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with saying it that way, but you have to understand. Heaven is not a physical place. 
<laughs> I think what you should say is, I want to go to be in the presence of God. And leave it at that. Okay? Yeah. Uh, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Okay. Let's get back to indulgences. The church has always taught that we can participate in getting ourselves to heaven by the way we live. I won't go into the details, but that means doing and believing things. If we are on this road, we can help ourselves through prayer, through good works of charity, etc. The Martin Luther particularly and his followers put that down and said, we can't do anything uh, to enhance our uh, getting to heaven. Well, the church has always said, God gave us a free will, and free will has uh, a right to help out we cannot be totally dependent on God. And as Martin Luther felt, that mankind was no good whatsoever without the help of God. And that's not true. Um, so the church has put that whole idea down. And that works in with uh, the idea of indulgences. But in Martin Luther's time, in order to build these magnificent churches during the Renaissance period. The clergy, who were taxed up to their hilt, uh, told their people, well, you know, if you help out and you pay this, you could get to heaven a little bit sooner. Uh, or if you do something else, uh, you get to heaven. But on the other hand, if you don't, you're going to go straight down. Well, neither of those is correct. Right. The idea of, yes, God will bless you if you help the church uh, because the church cannot carry on businesses or something else to sustain itself. It requires all of its members jointly to help out and take care of and pay uh, the bills. And so, the more you can contribute, yes, you will get a lot of benefit from that. But, that doesn't guarantee you anything. Uh, if you donate a million dollars, but go out and do all kinds of sinful things, one is canceling out the other. So, you're not going to get benefit from one and a kick in the behind for the other. Uh, however, I remember as a kid in the Catholic school that I went to, one of the things is if we contributed uh, a few pennies for the missions, we would gain indulgences. Well, we didn't know what the heck indulgences were at, those, at that level. You know. But in Martin Luther's case, it got way, way out of hand. Now, this was primarily in Germany, uh, not so much in the outer or other countries. 
or the northern part of Germany. But in central Germany and in far th uh, south as even into Italy and Rome, uh, it was quite prevalent and got way out of hand. And <clears throat> that's why Martin Luther's uh, 95 Theses uh, was appropriate for its time, but it was way off base in most cases. Those 95 Theses, if you went through them, there's a great deal of repetition, there's a great deal of repeating, uh, and some contradictions. Some of them don't make sense. Um, at least they don't in today's thinking, etc., etc. But a lot of them were valid. And I don't deny that. Okay. The council also addressed the whole idea of fasting. Fasting is the abstinence, temporary abstinence of certain uh, foods for a religious purpose. The intent. This goes along with uh, doing good deeds. Okay. It established fast days. How many of you remember the ember days that we used to have years ago? Uh, once a quarter, there were certain ember days or days of fasting simply to remind us of what our faith was all about. The whole purpose of fasting is to remind us of the trials and the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what our faith is all about. Also, it addressed feast days and divided many feast days into various levels of importance. Certain uh, events relating to Jesus himself, of course, took priority above everything else, but there were other feast days relating to Mary and other saints. One of the last items that I think is probably the most important was the establishment of the missals, the breviary, and the catechism. Prior to this, as I've said many times in the other previous classes, that there was no regulation regarding the prayers surrounding the Mass, surrounding the uh, consecration of the bread and the wine and the communion. That all came right out of the Bible. But surrounding that were a number of prayers. Uh, originally, they were from the Jewish uh, scriptures. But as Paul's letters began to be developed, those were added. But there was no regulation as to what was added, and there was no regulation as to how they were added uniformly across all countries and <clears throat> all faiths and all languages. But Trent addressed that and established a uniform missal and lectionary. And from then on until Vatican II, that remained the only lectionary and missal that we had. Vatican II changed it a little bit, not in intent, 
or form, but in subject matter. We'll get into that two weeks from today when the whole meeting will be devoted to Vatican II, which together made up the two most important ecumenical councils of all 21. Works alone will not save you. That's right. It's got to be faith that save you, but if you have faith, you will want to express it through some way. I think we're gone way over time. Have you found this an interesting? <laughs> you may have wondered up to this point why I didn't talk more about some of these details. And that is because they were not available in the earlier time periods. It wasn't until the Council of Trent that really addressed all of these issues and brought them together in a documented form. And before the printing press was developed, it was probably not really practical because you would have to make many, many copies of all of these details uh, that would have taken many, many years to get out to the people that needed them. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for helping us to better understand the details of the church. Help us then to better understand and appreciate the whole idea of church and concept within it. Give us the strength and the grace then to separate in our minds the concept of the church, which is an extension of you, from the people that run it. We ask that you bless those that are in charge, help them to turn uh, to a more perfect way of life and of loving you and serving you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.